I'm going to talk to you today about uh, internet-based communications and as the title implies there are some new words it used to be that when we talked about communication we would say conversation or we would say sender and receiver but now we have all these new words like uh, tweeting and blogging and uh, digging and so forth so how many of you know about tweeting how many of you know what tweeting is handful what about digging no never heard of it okay blogging blogging yeah more more people know blogging okay all right that's that's good so let me begin by just briefly defining these things or what they are before I get to the heart of what I want to say about the importance of communication through these uh, technologies. So let's start with uh, the notion generally speaking of interactive communication. There's interactive communication everywhere. We are interacting these days. If you see a simple news story like this, uh, this is about Penn State's uh, volleyball game uh, published in the New York Times. You will see if you look through the story carefully, the one difference from uh, the good old times is at the bottom of the story, you'll see all these different uh, symbols. So what do these symbols mean? Essentially, these are invitations for us to become social with that piece of news. Previously, we would read that news, news and if we were very moved, maybe once in a blue moon, we might write a letter to the editor or we might share it with somebody in the household. But these days, immediately, you can click on these buttons and there are numerous options for you to share it in, in through many, many different software. There are literally hundreds of software that are available for you to use to kind of disseminate not just that particular piece of news, but also add your comments, add your uh, you know, tips, and all kinds of different ways in which you can uh, disseminate or uh, further uh, transmit that information. So dig.com is one of the earliest software to kind of do that, one of the most well-known. And basically, what is, what is DIG? DIG is essentially three things that it helps you do. So you see a website, and what it does is uh, any story that you might like to share with others, it helps you share. And if you want to add a little comment to that story, it helps you do that. And then, most importantly, it helps you vote, saying this is a good story, or this is a bad story. That's called digging versus burying. Okay, you either bury the story or dig it. So how does that whole process work? You discover a story, you kind of submit it, and all of this is not a lot of work. You know, it's not like taking a shovel and digging. You just look at it online, and you just hit a button to submit, and then you hit another button to either say dig this or bury this. And based on that, it'll give a score to that, and some stories end up becoming very popular, um, on the web, like this particular story about a math teacher who had a Halloween um, a prank that was on YouTube, got 6,387 digs, much more than most of the major stories of the day. And well, that's one of the highlights of this kind of uh, social media software is because it helps you disseminate information that mainstream media may not ever pick up. So you can see that a four-year-old calls the police for math problems, got 2,000-some digs. Okay, and that's not a story you'll see in the newspaper, but you'll see it online, right? And a lot of people dig that story as opposed to burying it. So these kinds of things have a life of its own. It can create content that are different or bring to your attention content that you would not normally come across in mainstream media. 
there are many sites like this. There are very similar sites. They're called social bookmarking sites or tagging sites. So these are basically your way of saying, let's be social about the news environment. Let's be social about whatever information we're getting and share it with others and talk about it and so forth. In some ways, this realizes the ideal of a kind of a civic-minded uh, populace that reads newspapers. So you know, the, the logic behind this is very sound. Let's move on to Twitter, which is a little more popular, I think. Uh, everybody know what Twitter is, right? No? What is Twitter for the sake of those people who don't know? Anybody want to volunteer an answer? Yes. That's the key. It has to be, it has to be 140 characters or less, right? That's the key thing. The co-founder of Twitter, he came on Stephen Colbert and he said, "This is really a messaging service. We didn't know that we needed until we had it. Because most people, if you had said five years ago that you know I'm going to invent this new software where you can send people messages in 140 characters, you would have been laughed out of every venture capitalist's office, right? But now, it's actually one of the most popular." Uh, sites, yes. Why can't you just do that on email? Why can't you do that on email, right? But Twitter lets you do this through a variety of different devices, from mobile device. You can do it on cell phone, and you can do it on a you know when you're traveling anywhere. You don't need a computer. You can do it in uh, with handheld, with iPod. So it has multi, and you can do it through email too, if you like, or through websites as well. So it has much more functionality and convenience, which we'll talk about in uh, just a minute. So what's happening now is people are becoming rock stars themselves, right? They are tweeting because you know, the people who, who read your tweets, you know what they're called? Tweets. Followers. So oh. you, we all have followers. So you assume a kind of a persona. So even this guy who's, uh, whose wife is asking him, what are you thinking now? He tells her to go read his tweet. Right, and that's that's one of the consequences. Of it. But Twitter really became mainstream. I think uh, this this past year, when we had this uh, breaking story of that U.S. Airways plane that went down on the Hudson, you know, there was this person in the ferry nearby who actually took a picture and put it on Twitter, and that actually broke the story. It was even before mainstream media got to it, this story became big news, right? And that's, that's what kind of brought Twitter to the big uh, limelight, and everybody started using it. And even powerful people, congressmen are known to sit in uh, Congress, congressional hearings and Twitter and tweet. And uh, Barack Obama made his announcement about his victory um, through a tweet. And it's, uh, you can say a lot with 140 characters, as it turns out, and can be quite powerful and have a lot of followers uh, following you. So that's, you know, that's kind of your... Uh, quick introduction to Twitter. All right, so let's move on to, uh, and l let me just give you an example of uh, news as well as commercial. So this is Dunkin' Donuts started doing commercials through Twitter, and very, very powerful. So all it has to do is tweet saying, free donut today, and you'll have a whole line of people outside the local Dunkin' Donuts. Penn State is using Twitter for, um, it's live feeds, and you can see Penn State's uh, 
a little headline service with a link, with a URL. That's a very powerful use of Twitter. It's, it's happening all the time. Uh, Twitter has become a kind of a service where you forward links for people to further explore, okay? All right, blog. Now, most of you said that you know what a blog is, uh, and so we probably don't need to spend so much time. But unlike uh, Twitter and uh, uh, Dig, those are words that are that did not exist in that that kind of existed, but it's used for you know birds tweet and people dig. But blog, we never use that word as a verb in our day-to-day -day language. It comes from web and log. Uh, that's really the origin of blog, and. It's most well known for disseminating news kind of information, news and public information. So you might have heard of the Huffington Post, for example, very popular internet uh, newspaper kind of place, but really is a, is a blog uh, with commentary from a community of people. And uh, it can also be very useful for uh, transmitting, excuse me, I went way back here. It's news and people's commenting, and it's, it's a community talking about issues. So it's all electronic part. Right, right, right. So life is another uh, area of uh, blogging. You know, this is an autism blog. A mother starts a blog uh, kind of chronicling her journey with her son's autism. And so uh, there are many different ways in which blogs are being used these days. Uh, there's a photo blog. Uh, there are many photo blogs out there. There's a person who uh, took a Polaroid picture for every day and has a you know uh, a photographic. Uh. So in general, people blog about interesting things that happen in their daily lives, uh, breaking news stories, uh, things that uh, m might be important for them, information that they forward. These are called filter blogs, where they kind of filter. But a lot of the blogs are also what they call personal blogs, which means they talk about their opinions and hold forth. And it's a little more detailed commentary on what they think about the world and what, it, what they think about issues and so on and so forth. So where do, we, where do we go to blog? It's actually very simple as a term. Even Penn State has blogging service. You know, we train in our lab, we do studies where we train people who've never blogged in their lives before within 10 minutes. And they're up and running with their blogs. They can start blogging within 10 minutes of uh, training. And there are plenty of uh, free services available, including at Penn State, where you can log in with your access ID and start um, blogging. So these are not technologies that are very intensive in terms of um, um, uptake or in terms of uh, adopting that technology. These technologies are interactive. This is really what we mean when we say we are, we are interacting or interactive communication. And primarily, they make things very easy they make conversation very easy. Previously, it used to be much more transmission. You know, the media would send us stuff and we would receive it and digest it. Now we can have a conversation. And the second point is you know, it's the simplicity and mobility. That's the idea. Everything can be communicated and transmitted and shared fairly simply and wherever you are. You don't have to go to a particular computer terminal necessarily to do it. You can do it on your cell phone and so forth. But right now, we have no right way to use it or wrong way to use it. There are no rules. People are using these technologies for personal updates, for uh, coordinating events, for random thoughts, for chatting, for messaging. 
So all kinds of different functions are kind of evolving. So they're in exciting times right now. But in my own research, what I look at is this notion of user agency. So regardless of what you think about all these social media, one of the things that's really happening, when you think about the three things that we talked about today, digging, essentially selecting information and recommending it to others. Tweeting is kind of forwarding and commenting, maybe you know, just in 140 characters. Blogging is a little more intense in terms of your involvement. So it's writing and you know, writing your opinions and so forth. So in that sense, the, the, these represent kind of degrees of user agency or how much agency that you have as a, as a user. Where previously mediated communication, the receivers never really had agency. They were passive. Now we are all active. That's kind of uh, the, the key thing that I think I would like you to take home with you. So agency starts with the notion of you being a gatekeeper. Previously, it used to be the privilege of just a few select individuals in, uh, sitting in uh, editorial board meetings in major newspapers who could decide what you can consume and what you cannot, what's worth consuming, what's newsworthy, and what's not. But these days, anybody and everybody can uh, serve as a gatekeeper, so much so that uh, we take it upon ourselves to uh, gatekeep the internet. Right? We, we feel like we have some responsibility in making sure that uh, everybody's right on the internet and so forth. Right? So we, we actually actively participate in this whole kind of, that's what really blogging is very famous for, is people will correct you. If you say something wrong on a blog, people will come back and argue with you. Never happens in a newspaper, typically, or the editors often don't let you, or happens at a very small degree through letters to the editor, but not to the kind of intense degree that we see in uh, these media and not so immediate. So in, in terms of uh, agency then, users are really, really involved. They not only just gatekeep, now it's gone well beyond that. They are actually able to create content and recommend content. And in the case of blogs, for example, they are actually generating new content. Lots of people who never used to write before are now very famous because of their blog. In fact, there are A-listers, uh, A-list bloggers, so to speak who actually can make a living out of blogging, right? They, there are advertisers who would come and put ads on their blog, and they could have a decent living out of just writing their comments and opinions day in and day out. And so it's a way of uh, you know, thinking. You, what used to be your private thinking, now it can be public and communicated and therefore uh, disseminated on a mass scale. So the self or the user has become, in many ways, uh, the source of information. I am the source of information. I'm not just the receiver anymore. So what happens when I'm the source of information? I actually become much more interactive in my, in my uh, activities. I become very engaged. I become much more conscious. So people who go to civic, uh, Huffington Post, for example, they become much more civically minded and engaged in a topic and start discussing the details of political issue where previously they may not have or not given a choice to kind of chance to comment, they may not be as involved. Self as source also, the psychology of that is such that it breeds positive attitudes because it's your identity that's wrapped around it. So if I am forwarding something, like if you're forwarding something to all your friends through a Twitter, uh, through your Twitter account, you feel somehow that your identity is wrapped around that, right? Because you feel like, oh, my friends will think that I'm the one who sent it to them. So you know, it's my name against, you know, next to that article or whatever it is that, I've, that you forward. So there's an identity issue that's wrapped around that. So it's not just your engagement or your involvement, but also your identity. 
this is intrinsically appealing given uh, American individualism. In fact, more appealing in this country than in many other countries. These kinds of uh, uh, personal media are indeed much more powerful in this country than in others. And it can be a motivator for action. People who become sources of news are also people who, will, who are more likely to go to uh, political rallies and campaigns and take action in terms of uh, motivating others to uh, take up healthful uh, habits, healthy habits, preventive behaviors, and things like that. So some of our studies have kind of uh, honed in on those kinds of attributes. It also gives people a sense of control. It's like I'm the master of my universe when I'm selecting stories and I'm um, you know, doing things with information in the information universe. And so it's not anymore just a choice given to me by editors. It's I have control over my information universe. So these are kind of the psychological underpinnings of what's really happening uh, with social media, what it's doing to us. From a communication point of view, you can see what a dramatic change it is. Typically, historically, when we would see the, the classic, classic mode of communication is you would have a source, you would have a medium, and you would have a receiver. Right? These would be the classic ways of thinking of communication. Like CNN news, your TV box, and you here, sitting here watching CNN. That's your classic way of thinking about communication. In our field, for about 50 years, this is the model that we all kind of espouse. So what's happened now is this receiver has become the source. So you can see that it's kind of turned communication models on its head in a very dramatic way. And that's, that's the essence of what social media have done. The receiver has become the centerpiece and the self, so to speak, has become very powerful in, um, in kind of asserting identity and also having all kinds of uh, receivers themselves, like they have followers themselves. In fact, we've done some very nice studies where we uh, make people create a blog. Remember I said you can make people uh, train to create a blog within 10 minutes. Now we did uh, some studies where we uh, made them uh, blog and then unbeknownst to them, half the subjects in the experiment would get a lot of comments in a few days. And the other half would get very few comments. But people who got a lot of comments, they felt a significantly higher sense of community. And that higher sense of community is very consequential. In another condition, we had a lot of people visiting that site, the one that they blogged. And for other half of the subjects, we had very few visitors. People who had a lot of visitors felt a very strong sense of agency that we measured psychologically. And as it turns out, sense of community and sense of agency were both very strongly associated with sense of influence, which is an indicator of empowerment. So in that sense, this is an empowering uh, tool. Blogging, blogging is an empowering tool, not simply because it helps you play with your identity and gives you control, but also because your receivers, you have a lot of receivers out there who are kind of, uh, you know, reading your work and commenting on it and actively thinking about it. And that's, that's very powerful. So in general, we talked about self, but there's also self multiplied, right? There's the audience. So when we talk about receivers, there's not just me, but also there are others, my peers. So that's really where the socialness of some of this comes in. So I'm, I'm forwarding things to other receivers just like me kind of thing. And they are doing the same. And this, this whole kind of thinking gave rise to 
a kind of typology of sources. So no more do communication sources manifest themselves just in terms of visible sources like CNN or uh, the New York Times.com on the website. But even technologically, they could be sources. Like even media sometimes can be sources. Like Google News, you've all heard of Google News, which is actually run by a robot. The robot decides what are the most important stories of the day. There's no person in an editorial boardroom. So there, it's the technology that's actually serving as a source, so to speak, for you. And then receiver sources can be broken down into audience as a collective and self as an individual. So when you go to Amazon.com and buy, make a purchase, you know how often it says there are other people, other people who are looking for the same book. You know what they bought? They bought these other five books, right? And these are the star ratings. So when you go to book travel, when you're going to uh, Hawaii or some place nice, and you go to a hotel website and you want to um, you know, make a purchase for a hotel room, what happens? You see some are rated as high. There are user comments that say, I found a cockroach in the bathroom. These are all other users serving as sources for you. The audience as a collective is rating hotel rooms. These days, we, we don't normally purchase hotel rooms unless we see other people's uh, comments, right? And we don't purchase a camera lightly. You know, previously, we would just go ask the salesperson. But these days, we want all kinds of user reviews on online websites and things like that. So audience as a collective can serve as sources. But every kind of source has its purpose. And in our studies, we've shown that depending on who or what is considered a source for a piece of information, the way people evaluate that information changes. So when you say that it came from a newspaper, that, that means journalistic agency. We're giving it journalistic agency. There, the expertise domain plays a role. Like, does this, is this an expert newspaper? If this is a political investigative story, they want to know, this, did this come from Washington Post? Or did it come from um, you know, a National Enquirer or something like that? Right? They want to know uh, how to judge the expertise if it's a journalistic agency. But if it's a machine, if it's Google News, right, they apply the machine heuristic. The machine heuristic is basically a short mental shortcut that says, this, this story is probably objective. This is probably not uh, subject to any kind of ideological biases. Like Fox News, we know is ideologically biased in a certain direction, right? We will not attribute that to Google News, for example, because Google News is run by a machine. So it, chances are it may not know enough to make ideological discriminations in the kinds of stories that it supplies you. Self-agency is where we already have talked quite a bit about it, where the shortcut that we apply is how much you own that. So it's almost ownership, like you own that piece of story. This is, this is your story that you're forwarding or that you're creating and so forth. Peer agency, which is what we talked about in the context of Amazon.com and travel booking and so forth, gives rise to what we call bandwagon heuristic, which is the idea that everybody else thinks this is a great story, so I must think it's a great story as well. Or everybody else thinks this is a good book to read, then I should get that book as well. So that's kind of like uh, following the bandwagon, so to speak. So these are kinds of effects, bandwagon effect or ownness uh, effect or the machine heuristic. All these are effects due to different aspects of uh, modern um, interactive uh, technologies. So in general, when we think about receiver, receiver becoming the source, we think about uh, uh, the idea that uh, we are not anymore passive. 
right? We're not just passively receiving information like we used to before. It's not a newspaper that comes to our doorstep and we read it, but rather we are actively using the information and we are sourcing that information in different ways. We are seeding that information in different directions. And there are different agencies that are good for different outcome considerations. So when you're shopping, maybe peer agency is good because you, you want to get some views of others to decide before deciding which camcorder to buy, right? So that kind of agency is good for a uh, shopping kind of domain. For something like health activity, for preventive behaviors, or for civic engagement, maybe self-agency is much more powerful in motivating behaviors because they ultimately, I mean, we want behaviors. So for different uh, kinds of outcomes, we want um, different kinds of um, agency. And in general, with social media, like in Dig and uh, in Twitter, and uh, in blogging, the two critical agencies are self-agency and peer agency. You know, the myself and my peers, that's the important thing. We've cut out the middlemen, we've cut out the experts from the equation, and that's what makes these powerful. So ultimately, what are they doing? They are enhancing our agencies, and they are enhancing our community. So me and my community is really what it boils down to. And in fact, these days, a lot of the interfaces, I showed you the whole bunch of 100 different interfaces at the beginning, are primarily geared toward these two aspects. They are geared toward increasing your agency, how much you can do with uh, information on the internet, and then what you can do to build community around yourself or community that you can uh, belong to or be part of. So these, are, uh, these have become kind of the new needs or gratifications um, from using these social media. Okay, I'll stop right here and uh, maybe we can have a conversation. And I, I have, on. thank you. I have the microphone if you can raise your hand if you have questions and uh, I'll try to come over with the mic uh, if you need it. There's one there. If you want to communicate uh, to someone on Twitter, do you have to go through some protocol to do that? Do you have to belong to Twitter? Do you have to belong to Facebook? Or I know yeah. I belong to Facebook, but I don't belong to Twitter. Right. It's, a, it's just another one small step. Yeah, you just have to open an account. Okay, so you can't communicate unless you have an account. Yes, yes. You okay. need an account. And you need followers. Oh, you have to become a follower. Yeah. And the, okay. typical, uh, the typical etiquette is you follow a lot of people and they'll follow you, follow you back. What do, you see, what do you see as the future of newspapers and things? It just seems like that that's going to change dynamically or you know, drastic changes in newspapers, books, libraries, the whole media. Right, and that's the revolution that we are in the middle of. And that's what makes our field very exciting because we are finding new ways of disseminating news information. And one of the things that I'd like to kind of point out and we may not have uh, spent too much time talking about this aspect, but the idea of journalistic agency is still very important and relevant. So there is a place for professional expertise which is based on deciding what's good news, what's bad news, and how to handle the news, and how to you know, package it and disseminate that information. So news in a journalistic sense will not go away just because a lot of us are creating news all the time and disseminating and so forth the uh, revenue models will have to change. With the way people used to make money, the newspapers and other media used to make money will have to change with time. But uh, in terms of 
that being a source of news, it will continue to be a source of news. We do need professionals whose business it is to kind of look for news and assemble a digestible format of news every day. And do you find equivalents of that even in the online world like Yahoo.com and Google News and so forth still give you a packaged diet of news just like uh, newspapers and television uh, and network news uh, do? We have a question right here. Yes, with the mechanism of uh, Google News and uh, other ways of uh, adding to the social networking, um, what are the possibilities for improper, if you will, um, uh, manipulation of the news? Uh, it seems as though it would be easier without that editorial eye. Right, right. And there, there, are, there are plenty of examples of that, right, online. we have plenty of examples where people will take uh, news that's not probably real and then make it viral, so to speak. The idea of things going viral is basically spreading through social media. You forward and you know, uh, you get it to be dug. You know, a lot of people dig it and then it kind of uh, uh, goes forward. So that's the real danger of not having uh, expertise behind story writing or journalistic interest. And that is, that is certainly, um, a risk. That said, though, there's there's the marketplace that it caters to. So it's not uh, a voice that is uh, devoid of commenting. So one of the things that we talked about earlier with the blogging is it's its own self-correcting mechanism. They most people will not let you get away with you know with things that are not factually correct. At least if it's a blog of any consequence, right? I mean, if it's your own blog with three followers, three people who you know, read it and comment, maybe yeah, you'll get away with it and you'll, you'll, you would have added that much more gunk to the internet. But most of the places on the internet that receive and uh, have a good, decent amount of traffic, blogs are places where you'll see the kind of active debate and factual analysis that you will not see in mainstream media because the mainstream media, simply the bandwidth restricts them. They cannot talk more than half an hour on TV for on a given public affairs uh, topic nor can they devote space in a newspaper for doing that. So whereas in blogs, it can go endlessly. So there's that self-correcting mechanism. And so in that sense, there is a balance, I feel, in the, in the long run. How dependable are the uh, recommendations that you read? If you go, uh, for example, I try to book hell, and it'll say we have five recommendations. Uh, I barely, I rarely read Who's making the recommendation? Is the hotel owner making the recommendation? Uh, is really from a client? How dependable are the kinds of recommendations? Right, right. So this is, a, this is a very interesting question, right? Which is the idea that this hits at mostly what I was talking about, which is the idea of sourcing. He is not taking action on it because he's unclear on the agency, right? He's not sure who or what the sources of that recommendation. He suspects that they might be what they call Google bombing, for example, you know, where the, the, the businesses themselves kind of bump up their uh, uh, stock. By, in fact, there are people hired to do some things like that, you know, to tweet on uh, a product. There are people hired to tweet. There are people in State College who do a daytime job of tweeting. And they have to tweet in a way that it's not very obvious that they're pushing products, right? It, it has to be done very subtly and, and there are people who are very skilled at doing that. And so th that suspicion is, I think, well-founded. With, uh, with, uh, with uh, social media comes serious credibility concerns. One of the biggest areas of research in our lab 
is about the credibility of the information that results from social media. And in, um, in mainstream media you have safeguards and there are ethical guidelines and so forth. There are of course bad media, bad examples there too, right? But the ones that are bad we recognize right from the get go. And the ones that are good we know we celebrate like uh, you know major newspapers like New York Times and so forth. In the, in the blogosphere likewise you do have certain well established names and not so well established names. And it, in the case of travel and uh, e-commerce websites it boils down to the algorithm that they use. So if they use an algorithm that has the kind of security that would prevent people like merchants from um, influencing the score for example then that's considered better. So they, they're in the business itself you do find people saying you know I trust orbits more than I trust Travelocity and things like that. They, there's relative. So like in any other domain you do have quality differences across different products online. And that's the same here too. But it's certainly a good thing to think about. Who is it coming from? Is it my peer or is it really my peer or is it a, a kind of a plant from the merchant? We yeah. have two questions on this side. First the lady in the back and then a gentleman. Yeah, you said that, uh, ah, oh, ah, there we go. Um, you said that uh, the, um, oh shoot, um, the Google blog was more likely to be uh, without slant because it's run by a, uh, a robot, but there had to be a human being who reported the facts of, say, that accident, even if it was just the cop, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's not off his blotter. From the start, right there. Right. Right. I mean, and that's the original source, so to speak, the source that wrote the story or witnessed yes, the story and put it yes. on there. But in when we, we were talking that in the context of gatekeeping, so the gatekeeping yeah. by Google.com is less likely to be ideologically biased in, ah. in terms of the kinds of stories that Google.com ah. would pick up compared to, let's say, Newsweek.com or NewYorkTimes.com. I had a couple more things, too. Um, it seemed to me that Twitter is kind of a dangerous thing for young kids because young kids, when they get onto something, they they use it so much that it it uh, it colors their personality. And Twitter, it with its 140 characters, expunges personality. There's just no room for personality. I get really offended when I see LOL, for instance. Uh, I don't LOL. You know, right. I may be amused, but I don't LOL. And and they have almost no choice in how they're going to express themselves because it's all in these codes. Right. And I know kids who talk that way, and they're not interesting. And then right. two more I mean, things, yeah. real, real quick. Why is email, at least my email, only uses half the page? That annoyed me no end. And, um, and you, you put one up there. Uh, earlier and in, and on the wall it looked great because you had the whole wall there, but to compress into ten inches of whatever your or whatever your screen is, it's way too cluttered for for me. Yeah, clutter is a big issue, especially in uh, in advertising. We've done some studies that show that indeed clutter is the reason why you have newer newer intrusions like pop-up ads how much do you love pop-up ads right 
uh, pop-up ads are basically to get your attention because you've become so numb to advertising because of the clutter. You've kind of cut through the clutter and they call this banner blindness. There's a phenomenon called banner blindness because you know there's going to be a banner at the top of the website. You go straight to the search outcome or whatever the news story is, you ignore the banner. Sure. And so how do advertisers make money? They have to devise another technological solution. So to overcome the problems of one technology, they have to de devise another technology. That's and add to the clutter in a different way. Right, right. I wonder if you could comment on uh, Wikipedia and how that has influenced education and uh, scholarship. Well, Wikipedia is another example of uh, collective sourcing where everybody kind of contributes. And it's a good example of a combination of um, uh, collective sourcing and expert moderation. So there's some moderation that goes on. But again, the moderation is not very heavy-handed. They ask, they throw it back saying, this has some factual issues. Can somebody else contribute and fix these kinds of things with referencing and so forth? So in many ways, it is very democratic, you know, of a process of uh, bringing uh, information together. And there have been some studies that have shown that indeed, entries in Wikipedia on average are more accurate than Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica. And so in the law, over, you know, even though the process may not be as uh, stable and as worked out as Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, if you just look at in general, and there are of course false entries and there are problems with particular entries and so forth, but in general, the vast majority when you consider, it, do, it does work. So in that sense, it's a good resource. What I do get annoyed is when my students don't go farther than Wikipedia. Most of my term papers, they, their source begins and ends with Wikipedia because it is such a good source, right? And so in that sense, it somehow curtails critical thinking beyond. It's almost like you bought, uh, in the olden days, you bought your kid an encyclopedia and all their term papers came out of the stuff in the encyclopedia kind of thing. So it's a, it's a limiting universe in that sense, yeah. We have a question up front here. Is there a correlation um, in both generation, generationally speaking, in terms of those who participate in this interconnectivity, also a correlation with personality type? Well, th there is a lot of work on uh, the so-called concept of digital divide, which is some people are on the one side of the divide, the other side. And in general, people who are older, uh, people who are minorities and women, tend to be on uh, the side of the digital divide that um, are less likely to be used to the, you know, these kinds of media. That said, there's a lot of uh, progress with social media with gender. Almost 50% or 50, above 50% in many of these, uh, the software that I showed you, the traffic is 50 or a little above 50. Uh, but with age, that's still an issue. Um, it is indeed um, the fastest growing demographic. We are doing right now a survey of um, retirees and um, them getting on Facebook. Our hypothesis is, you know, retirees, they live in, uh, sometimes in isolation. Uh, they don't necessarily live in communities. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that they can do to kind of feel a better sense of community is get on social media like this. So that's one of the uses of building a sense of community. So we said, we hypothesized that those retirees who have Facebook accounts are going to enjoy a higher quality of life 
than those retirees who do not have a Facebook account. And that survey is right now underway. It's a national survey. We've sent out questionnaires. Uh, we cannot, of course, expect all retirees to answer the questionnaire on us on a website. They do get send us mail back and stuff like that. So, but that is indeed a big area of research. In fact, the media have so saturated the younger population. In fact, uh, many of the companies are targeting older folks and you know trying to get the get that demographic covered. Yeah. We have a question here. Mine's more of a comment, just to let you know. Um, I tweeted about this. Uh, seminar just a couple minutes ago and from my followers I got back peg bring it back we want to listen and I said we'll we'll see what I can do um, because that's what it's all about I tweeted about this great seminar and how he's engaging and talking with um, individuals and I said we need to hear this also back in in my case it happens to be the College of Ag up on Ag Hill at Penn State and all, several of my followers wrote back real quick get it to us. So that's that's an example of how quickly something can spread, right, right or wrong. <laughs> right, right. I mean, in Twitter has become very common, commonly used in uh, conferences and other seminars and those kinds of settings where there's a backstory. People are exchanging backstory through Twitter. So they're tweeting each other. Like you could be tweeting with her and exchanging comments back and forth and re reflecting and reacting to what's going on in the seminar. That's become a very common use of Twitter, which was not envisioned before, but has become very widely used, yeah. I have a very simple question. When you say 140 characters, are those letters or words? Can be either. Either? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And spaces, too, yeah. Why was someone waiting for me to tweet to them? And and the, that's the, to me that's a great comment or you know question because it is a different style, different work style, a different lifestyle. No longer are we uh, compartmentalizing our lives. We are meshing our lives, blending our lives with work and personal. Right or wrong? Again, I don't know if it's right or wrong. Well, it is for me. I'm finally in my element but I, it might not be for someone else. I mean, it, it, is, uh, uh, it is coming into your stream. It's not like you're going and looking for somebody's, you know, words of wisdom. It's all flowing in. So it's probably coming into their mobile as a text message when, when she tweeted this, and then they, they felt compelled to respond. You know, or it's uh, they're, and they're at their workplace doing email and just comes as a, little window on the screen. So it, they're not going anywhere. So that's part of the convenience and ease of this. We have a question up front. You have a feel if some of this stuff is not job related and is there a productivity downturn because of uh, Yeah, I mean, things? that's actually become uh, a fairly big issue in, in, uh, in the area of organization and management where a lot of corporations are concerned that people, they used to be concerned 10 years ago that people were spending all their time emailing with, for personal purposes and then IMing or you know, chatting for personal purposes and so forth. So a few big studies were launched in the last uh, six, seven years, which, which did very systematic analysis of organizations where there was a ban on this versus those that did not. And the general finding is they saw the ones that ban are the ones who suffer productivity. And those that do not ban these kinds of activities are fine. They just do fine. And so 
in, in general, this I, I think speaks to some of the aspects we were talking about in giving everybody agency. So if people feel agentic about it, they don't necessarily undermine the corporation that they're working for. In fact, they feel much more empowered to do well in all their activities, not just their personal, but also their uh, professional. So it, it, I think it's a, it's a good influence overall. So you commented a couple minutes ago about the uh, credibility, for example, of a hotel review. Now, what are your thoughts on, say, a blog comment that's either uh, anonymized or f via pseudonym versus someone who actually attributes their name you know, to it? For example, a letter to the editor, you're expected to put your name or you comment at a council meeting and you're, you state your name and address before you speak. Right. Uh, it depends on the nature of the content. So if it's, if it's a, like an everyday experience that people are relating to, doesn't matter. The attribution or the expertise doesn't matter. So for example, we did an experiment last year um, that's, that basically said, we took an urban you know, myth, uh, a legend from the internet, one of those that is false, which said sunscreen is bad for you. And we had a little story. So in one condition that came from a doctor on a blog, and another condition that came from Chris Parker, without an MD next to Chris Parker. And we found differences, as you would expect, right? But for stories that talked about uh, what happens when, um, you know, when I go out to the beach and enjoy myself, doesn't matter. But when there's, a, when there's an information that is of scientific value or something that requires expertise, the expertise heuristic triggers in. And expertise, wherever expertise heuristic, heuristic, by the way, is just a mental shortcut. So we all use heuristics in our day-to-day -day lives, right? We'll say, oh, this comes from Peggy, so this must be good kind of thing. Because we cannot otherwise live. Cognitive heuristics are a way of living. Otherwise, we will not be able to evaluate everything in our lives every day. So you see um, a long message and you say, length means strength. That's a heuristic that we use. It could be a long message full of nothing. But you know, we use that heuristic because that's how we get by in life. So like that, we use these kinds of heuristics that I talked about, like expertise heuristic or bandwagon heuristic. So expertise heuristic is really that. There's an expert behind this, therefore I must trust it, without thinking through all the details of the arguments that come forth. Yeah. Sham, I'm curious about the, um, the etiquette aspect of this. When you mention uh, people sitting in a seminar and tweeting each other, let's say while you're the speaker, does it bug you that people are doing that? And then I'm thinking about how about in the classroom, you know, because for a long time, you know, uh, instructors were not very happy about people text messaging during their classes. And I've heard of people collecting cell phones before the start of class right. um, to prevent that from happening. But I mean, is the etiquette, are the rules changing when it comes to etiquette? I think so. I think so. When, um, when people are testifying in Congress, there are some congressmen tweeting. You know, they're sitting up there in the podium, and you can see that they are tweeting. And that would be considered very, very you know, rude a few years ago, or doing anything like that, uh, other than pay attention. When I testified in Congress, Bob Barr was talking on a cell phone. Um, and these days, it's fairly routine in high-level meetings for people to uh, pick up the phone or text saying, I'm in a meeting. That's also a nice way of showing respect, right? Say, I'm in a meeting. I cannot pick up the call. Um, and in, in terms of tweeting and things like that that goes on in my classroom, I actually um, do not prohibit that. I think a lot of it is indeed uh, an example of um, 
them getting empowered to do something about what is going on here. They could be tweeting because they're bored with your lecture. That's, that's another possibility. And um, that I think in, in many ways uh, you know, speaks to our insecurity as an instructor. So if I'm insecure about my lecture getting across or if I'm insecure about uh, them not giving me enough respect, then I would probably come down hard. But if I say, if they don't listen to the lecture and are fooling around, it's, you know, they, it's their problem, not mine, right? So in that sense, uh, I, I feel like in, that's my personal. I mean, since you asked me, I'm saying that's my personal take on that and personal approach to uh, classroom uh, uh, behavior of my students. Do you think that Facebook, um, with the question, what are you doing now, which has subsequently uh, infected Yahoo and even Gmail, seems to have the same question, what are you doing now? Actually, has, that's changed since. That has now become uh, what's on your mind. Or what's on your mind. But right. still on Facebook, and, and, it, and it crept into Yahoo, my, my regular email. What are you doing? Do you think that this gives people the false sense that everything they do is important and people are interested in the minutiae? You know, it seems like the whole world has changed in that people are more interested in these kind of uh, minute details of everyday life that used to not be considered worthy of right, discussion. Right. I mean, that's, that's the downside in some respects of this user agency, right? If the user feels so agentic that they think that there are 200 people waiting to hear that you groaned or you brushed your teeth this morning, right? You, they do feel agentic. They do feel like, oh, I'm a rock star. You know, like I, I can, but the downside is, you know, they, all the minutiae and everything kind of gets, um, you know, into the mainstream of their, but, you know, these, these kinds of things can have good effects as well. I try to look at all of these in a very optimistic way. Uh, one of the trends lately of my undergraduates is they're constantly in touch with their parents. Something that you would not have seen, like she can testify, she's a mother of one of my students, Drew. And Drew would probably text her or call her or tweet to her after every class or, you know, she would have the kind of oversight on him who's a 20-year-old perhaps or 19-year-old, 21. 21, right? That you know, 10 years ago, a 21-year-old, you would probably talk when that person needed money, right? But now there's like this constant update of what happened in my midterm today, or what even little minutiae. So minutiae can actually be good for relationship building, right? I mean, we all, that's what we say when we say you don't talk to me anymore, is we don't tell me the minutiae of your day-to-day -day life. And so in that sense, it can have positive effects. But I do agree the sense in which you're saying, yeah. This is back in the beginning. What's the difference between texting and tweeting? Texting is anything that you can text with. Like uh, you can send a text message on your cell phone, for example. You can you know, uh, use text to transmit information instead of calling somebody, right? That's called texting historically. Tweeting is using a particular software called twitter.com as a particular website. And you can use your mobile texting uh, facility to send m messages to that Twitter account on that website. So in a way, your confusion is well-founded because you are using the modality of text to both send a text to another person's cell phone and to your Twitter account, which might end up in another person's cell phone. So it's the route through which it goes that makes a difference. It's route. 
And okay. Twitter, by the way, has that bandwidth restriction, which actually emerged because in the olden days, cell phone texting was limited to 140 characters. That's that's how the bandwidth restriction came about. Yeah. I, I, I think that you made a comment about uh, the American culture fit well with the use of these interactive right. communication devices or tools, and uh, that therefore there was more of it going on in the United States than elsewhere. Right. Uh, that actually surprised me. Mm -hmm. um, I was talk more, a little more uh, about sure. the comparative um, use or effect of uh, these tools in different uh, geographic scales, both within the United States and outside. I actually just came back from uh, spending five months in Korea. Korea is uh, probably the most uh, advanced country in terms of personal communication tools. They are the ones who were doing texting and cell phone use, etc., three, four years before. So if you look at Korea now, you know what's the technology that's going to hit U.S. three years from now kind of thing. Now, one of the things that Korea caught on to much before we did is a software called, I mean, it's a, it's a site called SciWorld. SciWorld is basically like our Facebook, except that it's much, much bigger and much more community oriented. And if you see in across Asian countries, you'll see a lot of these kinds of software emerging and becoming more, more popular, the kinds of software that are community building. In the US, however, you do have community building software like Facebook and MySpace and so forth, but predominantly the ones that are runaway success tend to be things like Twitter and even Facebook use, the, the qualitative nature of the use of Facebook is different here than the Asian countries because here Facebook is used more for self-presentation, individual self-presentation, like home pages were used 10 years ago. A lot of people put up home pages to kind of promote themselves in ways that were very positive, of course. And so a lot of people use Facebook in the same way. Equivalent social networking site in uh, Asian countries, you'll, use, you'll see them using it for community building or to reaching out, reaching out to people and joining groups and things like that. It's a very different, qualitatively very different kind of usage. Even though some of the software might be the same, the traffic might look similar when you just look at the quantitative numbers. And so as a communication researcher, for me, this is this kind of cross-cultural difference is very fascinating. And I have, you know, after looking at the number of anecdotal instances as well as evidence from research, I have come to, come to the conclusion that I kind of shared with you earlier, which is that the American individualism, I think, promotes the, or at least sustains, these kinds of um, very uh, agentic technologies, whereas the collectivistic cultures out in the East tend to be much more, um, you know, uh, supportive of community building rather than simply agentic kind of technologies. We have time for one more question. in this technology. Unfortunately, I'm not able to catch most of the question. Where does enthusiasm to all this technology end and addiction begin? Okay. Well, the enthusiasm, I mean, part of the um, 
part of the enthusiasm is coming from the technology itself and the uh, subculture that it builds. And so we, we've done uh, a few studies in the last couple of years on the concept of coolness. You know, we all say this is cool. A lot of people adopt technology because it's cool. So we want to find out what is it this, that's cool? What does coolness mean? And as it turns out, it means three things all rolled into one and has to be inseparable. Individually, they might be different things. But they only when they come together in a technology is when it's going to build enthusiasm for that technology. And those are, first of all, it has to be distinctive. It has to make me stand apart from the crowd. Secondly, it has to have great utility. It has to be of value to you, something that you can see worth in. And then it has to be novel. It's not something that has come before it. So it has to be something that is, it does something new in a newer way. So these three things, novelty, utility, and distinctness, have to be rolled into one technology for it to be considered cool. That's when you know, the youth especially become enthusiastic about uh, a given technology. And that subculture that builds around it, often sometimes the, the last factor, novelty factor, and also the first factor, distinctiveness, builds a subculture that uh, borders on rebellion. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm in uh, tweeting, you're not tweeting kind of thing. There's a, there's a kind of a subculture that builds. So those kinds of ingredients are in, important for a technology to get diffused heavily among, um, among uh, young people. And of course, heavy usage, there's been several studies ever since the uh, internet became a rage on addiction and uh, dependency. And that is, that is indeed a real issue. Uh, there, are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of clinics now that specialize in ridding you of uh, internet addiction. Uh, there are boot camps in, where in Korea where I came from. There are boot camps that get people off games and boot camps that, uh, separate boot camps that get people off uh, the need to keep checking email, need, you know, things like that. So it is a very real psychological consequence that's unfortunately not very positive, yeah. Well, on that note, please join me in thanking Shamsundar for a very thought-provoking talk, and we'll present you oh, a mug. You. And I, I hope you're all addicted to Research Unplugged, because we'll be back in, in uh, I think, uh, mid-March uh, for our spring season with seven, and not six. We're going to have a special treat of seven events for you in the spring.